I'm going to do my best to condense as much as I can into tonight's message. I won't be back for the next couple of weeks. Uh, my wife and I will be out of town next Wednesday. And then the following Wednesday is prayer night. So I'm going to try to get as much as I can get in tonight. Of course, I'll be back, but I'm excited. You can bring me down just a little bit more yeah, because I, I can still hear the room. Um, we've been on this topic of creating a prosperity culture, and I want to reiterate that the purpose is not money-based, not in and of itself. All culture comes from a spiritual need or a spiritual position. All culture is spiritual. Now, the results of a culture are physical. When you adopt a certain culture, it creates physical manifestations. If you look at the world today, you, you can see, you ever, you ever drove through a city and seen the income level go up or down just based on what street you turned on to? And you notice, I'm trying to say this as politically correctly as possible, you can sort of tell the culture of the people matches the income level of the neighborhood you're in. You can fill that in however you want. There's a reason for that. It's not race-based, it's culture. It's really not financial. You know, poverty does not make you spray paint, spray paint graffiti on the walls. Not having a lot of money does not make you rob people. Being poor does not make you do drugs or sell drugs. Those are common misconceptions that, well, they don't have as many options. You have enough. You have enough. There's an element in your culture of a group of people, regardless of race. Because at this point in 2022, the races have mixed so much that it's not racial. Not that it ever really was. It was always cultural. On behalf of black people, I can honestly say that black culture has evolved in some areas and devolved in others. The average black family in the 50s had a two-parent household. The median income was comparable to the average white family. Crime rates were down in black neighborhoods. They were just as black as we are today. What happened? Culture changed. Culture changed. And you can see that throughout all the, any race or group of people. You can create a culture with any group of people around any identity, regardless whether it's racial or gender or income, location. You got neighborhoods that shoot at each other because you came from the wrong neighborhood. That's culture. Same color, same educational level, but you grew up on the wrong block, but now I have to kill you. That's culture. So culture is spiritual, and it creates physical manifestations. So as we talk about creating a culture of prosperity, I want to keep the focus on the heart of God towards the spirit of man and how we transform. Because when we transform into the kingdom of God culture in this area, prosperity is the result. And an element of prosperity 
is financial prosperity. Money alone is not financial prosperity. Money alone is not financial prosperity. But prosperity breeds financial prosperity. Does that make sense? You can be, you can have a lot of money and not be financially prosperous. You can hit the lotto tomorrow and get $100 million. You have not financially prospered because your soul hasn't caught up to your bank account. And the book of Proverbs says that a fool and his gold will part. If you are a fool, your finances will reflect your culture soon enough. So I want to keep the focus on the heart. Tonight, and we talked about tithe the last couple of sessions, and I want to kind of close out something, you know, I, even, though I was, even though I'm technically done with the tithing portion, I was meditating on it, and the Lord gave me this, and I just want to share it with you. And then we're going to go on to giving and what the difference is. I will say this. When we talk about giving, when we talk about tithes, offerings, and sowing, a lot of times we make the mistake of blending the terms. You should never do that. Tithing is different than giving an offering. Giving an offering is different than sowing a seed. They are distinctively different, both in their manner and the heart behind them and in the return. If you give an offering expecting a seed return, you won't get it and you won't know why. If you sow a seed, but you treat it like an offering, you won't see your harvest and you won't know why. If you tithe and you think you've sown or you've given, you won't walk in the blessing and you won't know why. We have to understand that these are separate, they're connected, but they're distinctive. And a lot of times we use the terms interchangeably and we never should. You should never use them interchangeably because you may be in error well-meaning and good-hearted, but you might just be misappropriating one type of giving from another. And because of that, you don't know what to expect. And if you don't know what to expect, you won't know when you've gotten it. If you don't know what to expect, you won't know how to protect it. Because you can't protect what you don't expect. If you don't know, I won't go there. That's kind of crude. Let me get a better example, Lord. I want to keep this G-rated. Well, I can G-rate it. Okay, I can G-rate this. When a woman becomes pregnant, we say she is expecting a child. Now, depending on what her lifestyle was before, she, she was expecting, she may have to make some significant changes to what she eats what she does, what she doesn't do, the stress, the strain she puts on her body. If she drank before, she can't drink while she's pregnant. If she smoked before, she shouldn't smoke anyway. But if she did, she can't do that while she's pregnant. It, certain over-the-counter medications you can't take when you're pregnant. Certain things you can't do because you're expecting something and you know what you're expecting. Because you have a clear picture, there's a human being in here and it is vulnerable to certain things, I have to protect that human life. 
She doesn't think, I just put on weight. No, she knows what's in there because she knows how it got in there because she did something to get it in there. It was an intentional process that put the baby in there, and that's all I'm going to say. And her mentality changes to protect what she knows is coming in nine months. So, but if she just thinks she got struck by lightning, and she doesn't know what's going on with her body, she will mishandle her harvest until it is aborted. Because she doesn't know what to expect. She doesn't know what's going to happen. Because maybe it wasn't intentional. And in ignorance is where the devil gets us. I told you the last time, the devil doesn't have any power over us. But he can play us for fools in our ignorance. He will never stand up to you and back you down. He's not strong. He knows that. Jesus knows that. All the angels know it. All the demons know it. Everybody knows it except us. And we're the ones who should know it better than anybody. He will never stare you in the face and back you down. But he will trick you if you don't know what to look for. He loves it when you're ignorant. He especially loves it when well-meaning, generous people are ignorant because it, it takes the steam out of giving if you don't get anything back. You just do it because pastors preach you into doing it. And then when you get bored of doing it or tired of doing it, you find another pastor to pump you back up into doing it. But you're never really living. Some of you have been giving for years, and you're not living based on how much you've given. That's ignorance. It doesn't mean your heart's wrong. It doesn't mean you don't love God. It doesn't mean you're not generous. It means you don't know what to expect, so you're not protecting what you're expecting. You're doing it as a matter of culture or as a matter of tradition. You're not as intentional as you need to be because you don't really know one type of giving from the other. That's why God gave us teachers to teach us. Because you have to know what you're doing every time you put money in that bucket. And you have to know why you're doing it. You have to know what your heart has to say before you do it. It's not just an exercise. Your heart has to say a specific thing before you put money in there. Just because you write something on the tithe line, don't make it a tithe. Just because you write something on the offering line doesn't make it a gift. We would, we would, if we were less honest in this church, we would just pump you full of hope and dreams to get every dollar we could get out of you. But that doesn't work. God holds us accountable for that. We'd rather teach you so that your giving can be intentional. Because here's what I've learned. When you give intentionally, you receive, and it makes you want to give more. Nothing is, nothing is more inspiring to do something than results. You start doing something, and you get consistent with it, and then you start getting results. You want to do it more. And we don't have to preach at you to, to give or to tithe. You'll be, you'll, be, you'll be looking forward to doing it. That's the heart behind it. So we're, gonna, we're going to destroy the spirit of ignorance with knowledge and training. Because I believe that everybody in here is generous. Abraham, we talk about Abraham and how he tithed. 
the, t- the first time the word tithe is used refers to Abraham tithing, even though it's not the first tithe. The first tithe was the tree in the garden. That was the first tithe. And once that tithe was violated, the man became cursed and the earth became cursed. We talked about that. I'm not going over all that. I don't have time. Abraham tithed when there was no law requiring him to. Jacob tithed when there was no law requiring him to. There's two specific incidents in the Bible where Abraham tithed and then Jacob, Abraham's grandson, tithed. And the word tithe is used in the Bible. There was no law requiring them to do that. They tithed out of their trust in God and their desire to please God. The reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a debate in certain Christian circles where whether tithing is of today or not because it was in the law of Moses. For those of you who aren't as familiar with the law of Moses, the law of Moses was, you didn't read the book of Leviticus. The law of Moses was the law that God's chosen people, the Jews, were to live by and how they conducted themselves in every affair. And it's, if you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, you'll get a good picture of how it came into play and what it meant. And it's very specific and it's very detailed. And you have entire scholars whose entire PhD is in Mosaic Law, right? So obviously, you're not going to be able to get over all that tonight. But one of the things that was included in Moses' law was tithing. And so there's this debate because when Jesus came and fulfilled the law, some believers broke off and said, well, tithing's over. Jesus fulfilled the law. He ended the law. And actually, the word end is the wrong word. Jesus didn't end the law. He fulfilled it. He, he completed it. He was the purpose for the law. He was the conclusion of the law. He didn't make the law, for lack of a better term, pointless, so much as he revealed the whole point of it existing in the first place. And when we came up under the grace of God through Christ, the heart of God was to turn us more into being like Christ than just following a set of rules. Where before they couldn't be like God, they could just follow a set of rules. Now they could be like God because the same spirit that was in Christ lives in us. So God's view of tithing was supposed to be our view of tithing. And I question the heart of anyone who struggles with tithing. I question your heart because the first tithes weren't law. They were heart. Abraham tithed without a command to do so. Jacob tithed without a law telling him to do it. He did it because he was a tither. You can be a tither without a law. And that didn't change. What changed, what should have happened, was once you realized that you could now walk in that same covenant, your desire for covenant would go up. Not how, not how close can we get without doing too much. Not how much can we get for the least. And that's the spirit behind the people who question whether tithing is for today. They're just trying to figure out how much they can get without doing too much. And if that's your mindset, there's no set of regulations or rules that you'll follow for too long. I don't care how well we preach it. 
I got into a whole argument with a guy behind that. And it just came down to the fact that he didn't want to tithe. Okay. You don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. God will not hate you if you don't tithe. You just won't walk in the blessing of the tithe. And that's on you. It's not on me. Jesus still died for him. Jesus still loved him. He's just living under a curse. Tithing is above the law and precedes it. Before the law, tithing was an act of character. God included tithing into the law of Moses so that Abraham's descendants would never detach themselves from the blessing of the tithe. God included tithing into the law so that they would continue to do it as Abraham did it and as Jacob did it so that they could always be attached to the blessing of the tithe. And this is because one man's character, if you're writing anything down, write this down. One man's character will become his children's culture. Parents, listen to me. Book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I've been meditating on that scripture because a lot of us think or have thought that we train or we have trained our children in the way they should go. And then when they get older, we try to figure out why they departed. Because you didn't train them, you taught them. The Bible does not say teach your children the way they should go. It says train them. How do you train someone? You develop a culture that's based around your character. If you're flaky, flaky is in your culture. And your children will adapt to the weaknesses in your culture before they will adapt to the strengths. Children don't do what you want them to do. Let me give you revelation. Growing up, I never did what my parents wanted me to do. As a child, I never did what they wanted me to do. Because children don't do what you want them to do. Children do what you allow them to do. There's a difference. The Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far from them. You see, a child does not get up in the morning thinking, what can I do to make daddy and mommy happy? A child gets up in the morning and says, what do I want to do? What they will do that day is determined by what you allow. So when they go left, if you allow them to go left, they just keep going left. Even if you want them to go right, they will continue to go left until you disallow it. They'll go right, but you have to drive them that way. Now, when they stop being children is when they wake up in the morning and say, what would please those who love me? That's a sign that they're not children anymore. Maturity is no longer about what do I want to do. It's what should I do today? Now, that might happen at 18 for some. It might happen at 39 for some. You're a child until that's what happens. The Bible says train a child. It does not say teach a child. Now, you are to teach them, but teaching cannot supersede training, and training is cultural. When we were children, we got up first thing in the morning, 
got together as a family and had prayer. Seven o'clock in the morning. If you were sleepy, wake up. You didn't get to fall asleep. 7 a.m., the family was going to pray. I'm long-winded. I get it honest because my dad was long-winded. Sometimes family prayer didn't end until 9 a.m. Because if he had something on his heart he was going to preach, you had to sit there and he was going to preach. I remember my mom would have to tap him sometimes. The kids got to go to school. Oh, we hungry. It's, I ain't made breakfast yet. She would tap him because he'd get on one. A lot of the stuff that he preached in here was from 7 o'clock. And we did it every morning except Sunday. We went to church on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, we got up every morning and had family prayer, 7 a.m. You didn't get to sleep in until 10. Doesn't matter what your personality was. So now I can get up at 6 and do the same thing. I was trained to do that. They didn't tell me I needed to do it. They made me do it. If it was 7.05 and I wasn't downstairs, somebody was kicking my bedroom door in. You know what time it is? You better get downstairs. That was the culture of my family. That's why now that I'm older, I have not departed. There were things that they taught me that they didn't train me in. But everything they trained me in, I do to this day. Be careful of what you're training your children in. When I train a musician, there's two things that I always focus on. Music theory, that's the, those are the rules, not really rules, but guidelines. There's no rules in music, it's all theory. But it's the language. This is how a musician communicates. And the second thing is practice, physical practice. You have to put your hands on your instrument every day, multiple times. If you love it, it won't be a problem for you. I'm, my job as a teacher is to give you something to do when you touch that instrument. That's my job. That's training. You got to do it every day. You're not going to learn how to play an instrument from me teaching it to you. I can't teach you to play an instrument. I can give you what to do, but you have to do it every day. That's training. Training is done every day. When you train in anything, you do it every day. When I started training in martial arts, we had, Bruce Lee is quoted as saying, don't fear the man who studied a thousand kicks. Fear the man who studied one kick a thousand times. That's the dangerous man. The guy who does the same kick a thousand times is far more dangerous than the guy who's kind of good at a lot of stuff. So in our training, we would go to the gym and we do the same thing for an hour until you were so good at it, you didn't have to think about it anymore. Somebody come at you, your body just did the thing. That's training. Now, we had about 10 minutes of him explaining what tonight's exercise was going to be. I'm going to teach you the, the technique. I'm going to teach you the, the, the theory. I'm going to teach you to move. But then you're going to do it for the next 50 minutes till your arm fall off or your leg fall off. Because when you get out in the street or you get in the ring, you don't have time to think. You will always fight your training. Whatever you was trained to do, that's what you're going to do. I don't care what you know up here. Train means build a culture. One man's, a man's character will become his children's culture. The Lord gave me that. 
I said, that's good. I like that. That could be in a book at some point. To hold that in your spirit. Now, with what time I have left, go to Philippians chapter 4. Now, Pastor Diana, I believe I was going to say that she stole from my notes on Sunday. But to be honest, this scripture was not in my notes on Sunday. But as soon as she started reading it, it ended up in my notes. I went home and studied it and meditated on it. Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, church at Philippi, because they have been consistently giving into his ministry since he started his ministry. They're one of his biggest financial supporters. And Paul, at the end of his letter, the whole letter is about other things, but at the end of his letter, he comments on their giving. So let's talk about the offering. The offering is different than tithe and it's different than seed. You do not sow your offering. I know we use the words interchangeably. This is an issue that I have as a music teacher. Because I've been playing music for a long time, sometimes I talk out of my understanding to a student who doesn't understand. And I'll mix up terminology, and it'll confuse them. Because I know how to do the thing I'm saying, and sometimes it's easier to just do it. But then when you have to explain it to someone who does not have that foundation, sometimes the, the comfort that I walk in, my comfort zone, would just kind of everybody know what I'm saying. Because I, I hang out with a lot of other musicians. We have a way of speaking to each other. And we'll say, we'll use the wrong terminology because we understand what each other is saying. But if I'm with a student, I have to be careful to be more specific with my terminology because they don't understand. You do not sow an offering. Because that's not the purpose of an offering. You sow a seed. When you sow a seed, and we'll get more into seed when I come back. When you sow a seed, a seed has a very specific purpose, and that is a return. You sow for a return. You never sow a seed to sow. You sow to reap. When a farmer plants corn, he expects corn. He does not plant corn seed because he loves planting corn seed. He plants corn seed because he is expecting corn to come back to him. If he does not get corn, he will find out what he did wrong so that the next time he gets corn. When you sow into someone or something, you must know what your harvest is and you must expect it. You do not sow to sow. You sow to reap. That's not selfishness. Don't misunderstand. That's not selfishness. That's the system. The system is designed to enrich you through sowing. When I sow, I stare at my harvest until I get it. I don't let it get off my mind. I protect it. I guard it with my life because that's why I sow. Every time I sow, and I'm going to say this boldly and proudly because it's true. Every time I sow, I get my harvest. Every time. Every single time I sow, I get my harvest. Because I sow from beginning to end with one purpose. I'm only sowing this because I need this harvest. I'm talking about sowing. 
You know, some of you, you come up and we sow into Pastor Diana. I sow into Pastor Diana. Some of you sow into me. We appreciate it, but don't waste it. When I take a dollar out of my pocket and I put it into the hands of a man or woman of God, I have a reason. I have a name on that dollar. I know what I want it to do. I know what I want it to be. And I don't just, I release it to be what it is, but I watch my field. And immediately after sowing, I, I get extra vigilant about everything else in my life because I don't want something to come steal my harvest. And I notice something. Every time I sow, the devil shows up to plant strife in my home between me and my wife, between me and some other family member, between me and somebody at work, between something. Because strife is the fastest killer of harvest because it, it takes you out of love. And if you're out of love, you're out of faith. And if you're out of faith, you can't receive from God. You'll know when you've sown a seed because suddenly you'll start having strife with people that you was cool with a week before. <laughs> That's the devil. That's a good sign that your seed has gone in and now he's coming to steal your harvest. I'm dropping jewels on y'all. You better pay attention. This is why I always get my harvest. Because that's the first thing I'm looking for. Babe, we good? We straight? All right, let's keep an eye on it. I might say something and do something I don't normally do. I'll give you a hint. Gentlemen, if you sow a seed, right after sowing your seed, go do something extra nice for your wife. Buy her something nice. Take her somewhere nice. Take her out to lunch. Whatever. Do something. Give her some flowers. Do anything. Just kind of add a layer of love. <laughs> add an extra layer. Lay it on a little extra thick. It'll protect your seed. It'll protect your seed. I always get my harvest when I sow. Now, when I give, why do I give? What is giving for? Philippians chapter 4. Verse 15, now you Philippians, this is Paul talking to the Philippian church. You Philippians know that in the beginning of my gospel, Paul called his ministry his gospel, because that's what it is. When I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. No other church communicated. The word communicated here has to do with giving to his ministry. They didn't just talk about it. They communicated financially with him. He said a lot of people talked to me, encouraged me, but nobody did it by giving and receiving except y'all. No other church communicated with my ministry through their giving is what he's saying. There's more than one way to communicate with somebody. You communicate with your doctor when you pay the bill or with your mechanic for your car. That's a form of communication. You know, if you go, if you claim that somebody cheated you and you go to court, they look at, did you pay them? When did you pay them? Did you pay the amount? Because that's, that's a form of communication. Your payment, your financial transaction is a form of communication. For even in Thessalonica, you, now he was in Thessalonica, there's a church in Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians. There's a whole book written to them. He said, when I was in their part of the world, you sent unto me. You didn't pass the responsibility of funding my ministry onto the Thessalonican church. You continued to give even though I was in the neighborhood of another church. 
that I had planted. He said, and you did it more than once, once and again unto whatever I needed. Not because I desire a gift. This is on the back of our envelopes. But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all. This letter is him telling them he has received it. He says, I have all that you sent me, and I abound. That means I have more than enough. He's a preacher who's walking in more than enough. He doesn't say, I have just enough. Don't send me anymore. For all the preachers that are against, for, that are against wealthy preachers who say, well, you've got enough. You should give it all back. Paul said, I have more than enough. And watch what Paul says about more than enough. He says, I have all in abound. I am full. I have received Epaphroditus, the things which were sent from you. They are an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable unto who? Unto God. They gave to Paul ministry, but God received it as a sacrifice. Their funding of Paul's ministry was received by God as a sweet-smelling savor. You see this same language in the Old Testament when he talked about their tithes. When he was instructing them on how to tithe and what he accepted, he gave them specific instructions. We mentioned that last time about it had to be a firstborn lamb. It had to be without spot or blemish. These were the things that smelled good to God. These were the things that he received as a sweet-smelling savor. And if he received a sweet-smelling savor, it pleased him, and then the people would be blessed. Now, that was referring to the tithe. Here, Paul uses the same language. Paul is a Hebrew scholar, by the way. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. He's the only one of Jesus' apostles. He never walked with Jesus directly because he wasn't one of the original 12. But Jesus was a Hebrew scholar, a rabbi. Paul was a Hebrew scholar. This is my personal theory. Take it how you want it. I believe that's probably why Jesus picked him to do most of the writing of the New Testament. Because the other 12 guys were fishermen, tax collectors, regular folk. Great men and women of God walked in great might and power and wrote great revelation. But Jesus knew that the guy who was going to write most of the Gospels most of the New Testament had to be somebody who knew how to put words together. So he, he picked the guy. He picked Paul. That's my personal theory. Don't make it gospel. But you know, you, you, you reach from all backgrounds to get different people. You got to write a book that's going to last millennia. You need somebody who knows their way around a sentence. You might not pick the fisherman to write it all. You might pick someone who is a scholar with words. No one was more educated among the apostles than Paul. But my God shall supply all your need according to whose riches? His riches. Here's what Paul is saying. He's painting a beautiful picture. <sighs> he paints this picture where Paul has a need, and the Philippian church makes it their personal responsibility to supply it. 
asking nothing from Paul or God in return. They're just giving. They're just giving. When Paul went to a different church, they paid for it, and they never required the church he was in to pay for it. Their money followed Paul wherever Paul went. Now, I mentioned this before some time ago. I'll bring it up again. I think it's applicable now. If you study ancient culture, Paul was in prison a lot because it was illegal to be a Christian. It was more illegal to preach it. The man wrote the book on arresting and killing Christians. He knew the rules. When you were in prison, in a Roman prison, it's not like we have prison today where you get three hots in a cot. You'd starve to death because they weren't responsible for feeding you. Unless the emperor wanted you alive for some reason, they just put you in a hole. You figure it out. They had no responsibility to you. Paul did a lot of his writing. The, most of the New Testament we read was written while Paul was in prison. The supplies to write it were provided to him by his supporters. Because you could go visit a guy in prison. A lot of times, the ancient Roman prisons were the, the windows out, because the prisons were dug in holes. They were dug underground, and then you, you have like a window that you could pass by on the street. See, part of Roman culture was they liked to display their criminals because it would dis dissuade you from becoming a criminal. That's why crucifixion is the way it is, the public execution. The Romans were big on public executions, humiliation. So they put you in prison, but regular citizens could go by the prison and see into the prison, and the people in the prison could call out to the people going by. They've done excavations of Roman pr prisons, and they line the streets. That's intentional. The Romans liked to do that kind of stuff because it was like a public service announcement. Don't break the law because you'll end up naked on a tree or in a hole. The Romans were like that, and it was effective. It worked. You know, We have cops for that. You watch a lot of cops and keep you, keep you on the straight and narrow because people like a fool on cops. I like cops. It's one of my favorite shows. Anyway, the support that Paul received from the churches that he founded allowed him to write most of the Bible that we read. The Philippian church was one of those churches, one of his biggest supporters. We owe the Philippian church a debt of gratitude for their giving because the man couldn't do what he did for free. He couldn't do what he did without someone having a heart to give. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Very familiar scripture. Now this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For as concerning, verse 1, I'm going to read, my time is slipping away. For as touching, the word touching means concerning, it's old English. For as concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. In other words, it's not even necessary for me to write to you because you guys do a good job in communicating financially to the ministry. For I know the forwardness of your mind. I boast of it to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago 
and your zeal has encouraged other churches to give. Yet I've sent the brethren, lest my boasting of you should be in vain. In this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready. He says, I'm coming. I've been boasting about your bountiful giving to, to the other churches, and it's actually provoked them to be better givers. He says, but I'm writing you in advance so that if I show up, you guys be ready because I don't want you to look bad. I've been talking so much about you. Lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, I wouldn't want to be ashamed in my confident boasting. Therefore, verse 5, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before me unto you and make up your bounty. Not your scraps, not your leftovers, your bounty. Whereof you've had previous notice that you might be ready. As a matter of giving you more time to make the offering bigger, not because I want more. I'm paraphrasing, putting it in modern English. He's saying as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. In other words, I'm giving you more time to prepare because I want the offering to be bigger, not so I can get more out of you, but so that you have time to give more. Why? This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. Now he's talking about sowing and reaping. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. That's a direct one-to-one -one rate of return. What he's saying is, if you sow bountifully, you should expect bountiful in return. It's encoded in the Bible. Then he switches his, and this is where one of the biggest misconceptions about sowing and giving have come from, because we think he's talking about one thing. He's talking about two things. The first thing is sowing and reaping. The second thing is giving. And he, being a Hebrew scholar, is actually speaking in a similar language to the book of Exodus. Every man as he purposed in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You see, I don't know if I have time to go there. I'll give you a, a rundown, and then maybe I'll give you some homework. There was a there was a offering in the Old Testament that the the Hebrews were very aware of, and it was a gift that was purposed in your heart. See, the tithe is not a gift; the tithe does not belong to you. If you take your notes, write this down. See, the motivation for tithing is integrity. The motivation to tithe is integrity. It's your integrity. God gives you something of his and then trusts you with it. He trusts you to give it back to him. The tithe belongs to him. If you're a person of good integrity, you will not cheat God in the tithe. The motivation for giving is love. The motivation for giving 
is love. I give because I love you. I am not required to give to you. I am not being penalized if I don't give to you. I give because I love you. The motivation for giving is love. The motivation for sowing is reaping. The motivation for sowing is reaping. Those are three different motivations. They're all connected because a person of good integrity will never cheat the tithe. A person who loves will not have a problem giving. And a person who needs something will not have a problem sowing. A person who has a need will not have a problem sowing. A person who walks in love towards God will not have a problem giving. And a person of good integrity will never rob God of his tithe. If you don't get anything else, that's, that's what you need. But see, there's a penalty to not tithing. It's called the curse. There is no penalty for not giving. There is no penalty for not giving. However, the lack of desire to give may indicate a deeper issue with your heart towards God. There's no penalty for not giving. There's no reward, but there's also no penalty. But a lack of desire to do it indicates a deeper issue with your heart towards God. Because you don't love anybody you won't give to. I tell my wife I love her all the time. But I give her a lot of stuff, too. And here's the thing that I've noticed about when I give to my wife. I feel better than she does when I do it. Now, she gets happy. But I take joy in giving her things because I love her. If I ever have extra, and I have extra a lot, because I always have extra, that's just how I roll, she gets first crack at the extra. I've got this little cookie jar in our bedroom that sits on my dresser, and I put money in it, just whatever I feel like putting in the jar. And she has a bad habit that I'm trying to break her of, of asking me for money. And I tell her, I say, babe, before you ask me, go look in the jar. If the jar is empty, then you come ask me. But I put money in the jar so that she doesn't have to come ask me, because I know she's going to ask me. And I think about, how much can I put in there this week? How much can I put in there? And I just leave it. She's so used to coming to me, I'm trying to wean her off of that habit. So sometimes she'll come to me and I go, babe, you look in the jar? No. <laughs> go look in the jar. Because usually she's asking me for an amount that I already put in the jar. See, I put the money away. And I can keep the money because there's no set amount. She doesn't even know when I do it. She doesn't know how much is going to be in there. Sometimes it's oftentimes more money in the jar than I keep on myself. But here's my mindset. Once I put it in the jar, it's her money. I don't go in the jar. Once it goes in the jar and I close the lid, it's her money. She doesn't have to ask me for it. She just goes and gets it. That's my heart 
of giving towards her, one of the ways that I give. I sanctified the jar. Whatever I put in there is gone. It's just as if I spent it on a bill. I can't get it back. I put it in the jar. She can take it. She's got to get used to looking in the jar because she loves me. She knows I'll say yes to anything. So she's gotten used to coming to me and saying, babe, give me some money. And I go, okay, sweetie. But I'd rather she go look in the jar first. Most of the time, if she looks in the jar, she gets what she needs. Now, that's just, a, that's just a gift. It's an act of love. She never asked me to do it. She doesn't make me do it. I do it because I love her. And I like, I told her this this morning, we were just having a moment of just staring at each other and being happy with each other. That's all we did. We just stared and looked at each other. That's the truth. That is actually the truth. I don't care if you believe it or not. That's all we did. We just looked at each other. But I told her, I said, babe, one of my proudest moments as a man, now don't get in no condemnation if you're not there. If you are, feel good about yourself. I said, one of my proudest moments as a man was being able to tell your father that his daughter doesn't have to work anymore. Because I know what that meant to him. I know what that means to him. He entrusted me with his most prized possession, his daughter. He gave his whole life for her. And he let this guy come into his house and take her out and not bring her back. He expects that. Now, the girl at work, I told her she's had a job since she was nine, since she was nine years old. This is the longest period of her life where she has not worked for somebody else. She'll work. But as her husband, I made it, I set a personal goal. I want my wife to be able. I'm not telling her she got to. She can do what she wants. She's free. But I want her to be able to never have to go outside and take an order from anybody. That's me. And being able to say that to her father gives me pride. Because I kept my word to him. I kept my word to him. She, so when she needs money, the girl can get money like that. She can get money out of anybody. She'll spend your money faster than anything you ever seen. I can tell you that right now. Some of y'all wives in here, don't go shopping with my wife. She'll spend your money. She'll, she, she'll get it out you. I don't get to see any of it, but she gets it. <laughs> but it's my pleasure to give to her. When you love someone, you give out of love. You set the purpose for the gift. In closing, let me, let me give you a few nuggets and then I'm done. Because I'm not, ooh, I done gone. I might go a couple minutes over, but I'm, I'm wrapping up. Look, I'm closing my Bible. Y'all got two weeks off from me, all right? So let me have this. Just let me have this, Pastor. Let me have this. When you give, you are telling God what you think of him. When you tithe, you are giving God what belongs to him. But when you give, you are telling God what you think of him. When you give, you are telling God how you feel about it. You are telling God, this is, the, this is mine, belongs to me. Your offering is your money. 
It's not God's money. It does not belong to God, and he does not require it of you. Listen to me. God wants an offering from you, but he does not require it because it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to you. And you say everything belongs to God. He gave it to us. But he fellowships with us on this manner. You can get all of God. There's nothing of God you can't have. There's nothing he owns you can't get. There's nothing he's ever created that he won't give you. He gave you himself. He went to hell for you. And he did it. And some of us never give. And you'll still get to go to heaven. You can still benefit from Jesus' sacrifice and never give God a dime. Because that's, that's his state. He is a lover and a giver. He loves so much, he can't help but give. When our culture, that heart of us, matches his culture, our giving will reflect it. When you give, you are giving to show God what you think of him. It's relationship. It's fellowship. It's not a rule. It's a fellowship. See, I can teach it to you as a rule, but if it's not your heart, you're not going to benefit. Every man, as he purposes in his heart, let him give. Not out of a necessity, not as a matter of rules and regulations. Out of his heart, let him give. Because if it's not coming from there, you got couples, and I'm, I promise you I'm done. You got married couples where the man pay all the bills and don't give his wife nothing because he don't like her. They don't get along, but he's doing his job. They're not happy. There's no love in that home. But look, he'd pay the bill if he was single because he got to eat. So you don't get no points for that. Don't think because you're paying the bills by paying your tithes that that's an expression of love. It's the man who gives to the one he loves. That's the heart of giving. And we'll get into the technicals a little bit more when I get back. But focus on the heart. Study the scriptures that I gave you tonight. That should hold you down for the next couple of weeks. I'm pretty sure Pastor Diana is going to come in and jack all of y'all up. <laughs> but I won't be here. Nah. Listen to me. If we fix our heart to be as generous as God is, it won't matter how we preach it. We couldn't stop you from doing it. Can't stop somebody whose heart is in it. And you can't encourage them enough. We love you. We trust you. We believe in you. We're doing this thing together, and we're growing, and it's working. And I can't wait for testimony service because I can't wait to hear what God's doing in your lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go home.